0: For Boxing Day on BBC One, and Bergerac has a special ghost story for Christmas. I would ask you all kindly to join me as
1: I concentrate.
2: Hello, I'm Andrew.
3: Hello, I'm Lisa.
2: Welcome to episode forty-one of
3: Round the Archives, which is a spooky special. Spooky dookie
2: dook. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the numbering system's gone to pot, hasn't yes. it? Because we've pulled them forward a bit. Jammed
3: the extra one in, have Yeah. We? Mm. Episode
2: forty-one should have come out in November, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm waving it about before november no before november before halloween even yeah well you were keen
3: to get 40 out weren't you because yeah, it was uh, finished i was keen and it and was, it was
2: done. good yeah even if we do say so <laughs> <It was good. laughs> I'll get us. nobody else says it so we... yeah uh what 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 have we got to tie the loose ends up on nothing much, much really no, no no let's plug uh your your youtuberiness yes as as we've now yes. embarked on new series Doctor yes. Who, haven't we? Yes,
3: twenty first century Doctor Who. We,
2: we've just we've just done Rose today, yes, haven't we? Who and, and the Rose. And she was grateful. She yeah. was. Yeah. It's yes. good the cat wasn't here because she would have got terribly confused. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So let's just get on with it then, shall mm-hmm. we? As Warren joins us mm-hmm. for a bit of witchcraftery. Yes. As we look at
3: Hammer House of Horror.
4: Good evening, Warren. Good evening and greetings and salutations. Good
2: evening, Warren. Hello, Lisa. Welcome to the Hammer House of Horror. Mm Hammer sandwich. 13th of September, 1980. It's the first episode. Episode Mm 1, Witching Time. A Mm -hmm. 17th century witch transports herself to the 20th century, bringing terror to troubled composer David Winter and his actress wife Mary who now occupy the isolated farmhouse in which she once winch, lived. In which she once lived. Starring John Finch, Patricia Quinn, <laughs> yeah. Prunella G, and Ian McCulloch. Yes. Poor yes. old Granddad from Only oh. North. Don't get mentioned. Get oh, he's oh, only well, in one appears. scene, isn't yeah. he? So, yeah. Screenplay mm. by Anthony Reid, mm-hmm. directed by Don Lever. Mm. Hmm. So, Warren... Mm very firm i thought what did you think very firm (laughs) what 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 were the outstanding points for you then well (laughs) looking at it as a whole and keeping
4: abreast of the situation as it went forward um it was an interesting little play wasn't it and that's that's what it was it was it was a playette for television Hmm. i thought i mean
2: how well do you know your hammer films Uh, fairly well yeah but you don't know this series I don't well. know the
4: series particularly well. Like, the usual things, I've got I've got it and I've gone straight for the Peter Cushing one. Yeah. Which
3: is horrible. Which is horrible. We will never watch
4: again. No, and the house that Dripped Blood. Which yeah. we will never watch. Yes. But how <laughs> frightening
2: do you think these are?
3: It's unsettling, yeah. I think. It's disconcerting
4: because um, you don't know if they're playing, whether the, there is a witch, whether mm. he's suffering his delusions from his drink and his mm. drugs that he's taken, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
3: I see. I didn't look at it like that because we've watched. I've watched it twice now, and the, when I watched it the first time, I just took it straight. So I took it to mean that she's a witch. She's put a curse on him, or mm. she's sort of possessed him, and mm. then she curses his wife. Yeah. So that's how I didn't. I didn't think of any of the things that you thought of that he was trying to send his wife mad or anything like that.
4: Yeah, because I thought initially, initially he was try. He was slightly unhinged because of the drink and. The drugs the doctor was giving him because we mm. don't really know what the drugs were because no. she was having an affair mm. with his doctor so yep. therefore for all we know he could be slowly poisoning him to get him out of the way i
3: also want to know what happened to the dog which ran off
4: which, yeah, went yeah, off which ran off at the start off, of yes. the
3: episode never to be seen again was the dog a pain and they just wrote it out I, it, the, the
2: dog
4: was really
3: i he thought it was a good scared. acting dog yeah, yeah.
2: Of, of the two episodes that we've seen yeah so far yeah. it, it it does sort of upset me a bit that there's 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 sort of random cruelty to, to animals, animals. Yes, which well, I don't I think, think is unnecessary. It's, there's no need for it. And doesn't achieve. No. No. Doesn't actually help. It you, make it any more. You can do
3: what that yeah. you need to do without doing that. Because yeah. I'm I'm quite interested in seeing. There's a Denimelli one, mm. which apparently doesn't have any of that. He's a little bit more light-hearted. Yeah. Which I'm quite interested in seeing. Because I've got I bought a book about. The Hammer House Horror the series and the Mystery and Suspense series, and I want to see the Mystery and Suspense series, and it's got, out of print.
4: No, I'll lend you mine.
3: Yeah, it's, it's really, on YouTube. Really,
4: it's really, really good because no, this one with David
3: copy. Langton in that I'm really interested in seeing. Because
4: yes. he, so. he, I think, yes, no, I, I'll bring it next time. It's
2: really good. Yeah. I recommend that to because some... we start off with some very familiar thunder and lightning effects. Oh, wow. The
3: first bit's quite good. Yeah, I mean, good I, stuff, I say this good. as somebody who doesn't like thunderstorms. But the first bit, is just the rumble and you can hear it coming. Yeah. Then you get the classic, <laughs> yeah, which never happens. No. You know, you're expecting I Frankenstein's think... monster to put a lurch through the door. Or, or the door
4: opens up and
2: there's that flash of
4: lightning <laughs> behind the silhouette, isn't yeah, there? So.
2: But when Patricia Quinn as the witch mm. first appears, I do like the, it's almost like a retread of episode one of Cat Weasel. Mm. Um, in that she's like confused by the electric light yeah. and stuff and i quite um, like all that
3: are we yeah. assuming she causes the storm when she travels through time quite
2: possibly yeah because yeah. it's implied it's very localized Yeah, it's the
3: disturbance of the sort of yeah. elements because yeah. yeah. ian
2: mcculloch so, so says oh you had a storm then did yeah. you yeah. i didn't notice yeah. the thing
4: that concerns me is that she too readily accepts that she's in the future yeah. she's yeah. not too in- i know we've got a time constraint but there was a a little bit of couldn't, couldn't
2: help thinking of Lady Painfort from yes, Silver Nemesis. that's exactly
4: yeah. where I was thinking of going. Yeah. But I like her aversion to water. Yeah. Yes.
2: yes. But you said, uh, Lisa, because this is set in uh, the farm where yeah. she sort of travelled from. And yes. She, and she says she recognises some of the rooms. Yes, I used,
3: oh, this used to be my bedroom, yeah. my bed chamber. she was locked
2: in the cellar or yeah. something, wasn't she? Yeah,
3: and I just maintain that for somebody... And I don't mean this in a bad way, but she's a country girl. Mm. She's not a rich landowner, and it just the house looks too big.
4: Well, would she have been a servant? Perhaps. Well, that's
3: what I wondered, but it didn't come across like that, did it? No, it came across that it was her house. Or she's—I said to you, she that the the master of the house is mistress or something.
4: The house. uh, So we can only presume that the house has been extended from a cottage to a
2: farmhouse. But if the
3: room. Because she would surely, when, in her time, it would be a tiny little cottage with one room downstairs and one room mm. upstairs. Yeah. And not even necessarily a cellar. So it looks like they've just used the location because it looks pretty, in mm. a way. There's yeah. no historical logic to it, which bugs me. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> what What about the uh, the ladies chests and things well least, i'm not really so.
3: qualified to talk about those so yeah. Yeah,
2: what, warren were you surprised by the amount of um... no I, i've never been
4: surprised by ladies chests no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it does feel late 70s soft porn it someday. does
4: it is hammer 70s isn't it yeah. still because mm. that's the yeah. i mean from early 70s there used to be a lot of topless or semi-naked ladies in mm. hammer films mm.
3: so, whereas the peter cushing one feels like early 80s Horrible exploitation yeah. horror, yes. which I don't like.
4: No, that, that is definite exploitation torture, isn't it? Yes.
2: Because yeah. the witch makes a sort of effigy of Prunelogy. You said it was a little unflattering, it's wasn't it's very it? Quite, unflattering. It's quite
3: lumpen, it's isn't a, it?
2: It's... it's got thunder thighs and yeah. things, isn't it? <laughs> and what, what do you say, Lisa, about when is in, a, in, a, in her skimpies, yes. rolling down the rolling stairs? Rolling
3: downstairs, which is a. being a, attacked by a bus. A bus, which is a stump <laughs> woman which apparently the stunt woman doesn't have the shoes on but then it cuts back to prunella who's got shoes on yeah, right, okay. they, they match that up I, a little I bit I didn't
2: look at his shoes
3: yeah but I'm not sure but yeah she's got a bra and sort of skimpy knickers on but they they, they look flattering. a bit grey they look like they've been washed too many times you know I would have put been putting the I would have for pure white yeah, so it, it but ah, that, then, it.
4: then you've got the issue of lighting.
3: There is that, yes. So, if you're or gonna, black maybe. if
4: you're going to use white satin or yeah. white silk, it's not going to appear well on screen. No, no, perhaps it was. This sounds was like the
2: voice of experience.
3: <laughs> <laughs> How many films
2: have you made with your skimpies on display? No, I thought the acting <laughs> caliber was really good. <laughs> But you were...
4: You it's were, all about... No, no, I'm going to have to clarify this okay. now. It's the old Avengers thing about leather and stuff right, like that. Okay. It absorbs the light, yeah. doesn't it? Well, I, I did, In that
2: case, it will flare the light because it's a lighter colour. Yeah, I mean, I did notice they, they, they chose a white horse because you could see it in the pretend night filming. Yeah. Oh, I just yeah. think you're being silly over that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, yeah, um, and also that the thing about the doll mm. that I don't get is mm. when Prunology... Refashions it.
3: Wait, she doesn't. She just changes the hair. She,
2: she just moves a couple of the lumps about. She moves it she?
3: and she, she, she. It had blonde hair and now it's got red hair. Where did she get the hair from? Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, I would have asked uh, it more if she pulled a, a lump of her hair out.
4: Yes, because to make the doll in the first place, mm. it would have been her hair and you could not have broken the spell because it would have been her hair. Mm. That, so, therefore, there's something aesthetic about its victim, isn't yeah. there?
2: But I also found it interesting. You were looking for almost one twist too many as he we was. were watching this, weren't yeah, right, yeah. you? Warren? Yeah. You were you were trying to say, oh, she's in a she's in a ward in hospital. Is it all in her head or something mm. like that? And yeah, mm. I, I I don't I don't know how clever this series tries to there's get. There's not occasion. that
3: many twists. I don't think in the mystery and suspense. I think there's more twists. Yes. Mm, this is very very just so. sort of horror. Yeah. But as you said, with a
4: about few the, twists. Um, just to digress about the Peter Cushing one, where the conclusion is the fact that they're locked in their own <coughs> home. Yeah. And being mm. used as an experiment there. Yeah.
2: And you quite rightly said, Hold on a minute. Well they're trapped in the house till the postman comes the next morning. <coughs> <coughs> uh, yeah. 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 I, I do I do wonder about whether some of this almost needs a A a slight re-edit, I don't know. But you've
3: got Anthony Reid as a script editor, so is he not doing his job properly? And you
4: have to look at the volume of stuff he's probably having to go through. I, I
2: don't know what the turnaround time is, but... Yeah, of of the ones we've seen, they're nice ideas, mm. but I don't think they're quite the final draft. No, that perhaps they should mm. have been. I Maybe Terence
3: Dix to come in and cross yeah. bits out with his red pen. Well, uh, the, blue proges- pencil. the
4: producer Roy Skeggs, mm. Captain Kronos. That was it. All right. Okay. And he was the director of Captain Kronos, the uh, the Hammer film. Yeah. So, but yeah,
2: I mean this th- this one. I think this one's fine, but yeah. it's not to be taken too seriously or analysed no. too no. much. And it right. is it is a season opener. Yeah,
4: season opener because you can't go too high. No, on yeah. your season yeah. opener. Nice no, new. I, I think
2: get. I think these very much w- work on the assumption you're not going to watch them again. Mm. Yeah. So and I, don't, well, the, I don't, Yeah, I think
3: most stuff at this point is designed to be watched once, and yeah, there's yeah. no thought that it's
2: anybody
4: will
3: like, ever watch it again. It's been
4: like thriller, isn't it? Yeah. Or. Um, any sort of standalone one-hour drama, isn't it?
3: <laughs>
2: but there you are. Yes, I enjoyed that. It's fun, it, it and is is fun. I mean
3: Patricia yeah. Quinn is fun, and we have met yes. her, and she kissed my DVD cover. And Graham Graham Garden said Graham Cramp, Graham Garden was tremendously scared of her. Yes,
2: really. And speaking of Graham Garden, mm-hmm. here's yes. a nice little link. Yes. The next witchy thing we will look at does involve Graham Garden. It does. It does. So we'll be back mm-hmm. later. Yes. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> bye. Many thanks to Warren. Yes,
3: thank you, Warren. He will be back.
2: He will definitely be yes. back. And now, we stay spooky. Oh, jinkies. As Paul Chandler returns with his pointy hat on to become... Bewitched.
5: Elizabeth Montgomery
6: in...
2: Bewitched.
5: Stay tuned
7: for Bewitched. Hello listeners, it's me, Paul, Paul Chandler, Shoyeti, from um, the Charlotte Podcast. Here again, um, yes, here again. Now, Andrew and Lisa are very good to me. They let me talk all kinds of nonsense about some of my favourite shows. Mostly these are series that uh, nobody else wants to talk about, so <laughs> I'm sorted. Originally, I was going to talk... About some Christmassy episodes of this series, but things got jiggled about. And as this is our Halloween special, I'm going to be talking about some Halloween episodes of my chosen series this time. And what is that, you ask? Well, Andrew and Lisa may already have given that away. This time I'm going to be talking about Bewitched. So, in a way, I kind of like that I'm doing Halloween episodes of an already supernatural and one if not spooky series certainly um supernatural yeah certainly a supernatural series so it's kind of halloween on halloween in a way anyway i should give you a few facts bewitched ran for eight seasons between september the 17th 1964 and march the 25th 1972 with a total of 254 episodes for those of you who don't know The main character of Samantha Stevens is played by the lovely and wonderful Elizabeth Montgomery. And other characters include her husband Darren, first played between 64 and 69 by Dick York, and then for the final three seasons from 69 to 72 by Dick Sargent. Other key characters include Samantha's mother, Endora, as played by Agnes Moorhead. Darren's boss, Larry Tate, played by David White. Larry Tate's wife, Louise irene vernon between 64 and 66 and casey rogers from 66 to 72 alice pierce and later sandra gould played the part of gladys kravitz who was the the nosy neighbor who was always seeing samantha doing magic and yet no one would believe her her husband abner was played by george tobias now other characters included tabitha stevens played by erin murphy tabitha was samantha and darren's daughter later there was a son uh called adam Uh, but uh, i don't see him mentioned here other members of samantha's family included morris evans as morris samantha's father marion Lorne as samantha's aunt clara alice ghostly as esmeralda samantha's babysitter and paul lind as samantha's uncle arthur you did see darren's mother phyllis stevens played by mabel albertson and also his father frank stevens who was played by two different actors robert f simon and later roy roberts wikipedia tells me that in 2002 which was ranked number 50 on tv guides 50 greatest tv shows of all time basically the premise is that samantha who's a witch marries a mortal named darren and all of the various comedy that ensues as a result of uh, a witch marrying a mortal and although samantha does promise not to use her magic um well she does and the pair are regularly uh, bamboozled by endora samantha's mother also which of course i'm not sure i told you who created the show it was created by sol Sachs, who uh, wrote the pilot although he wasn't involved with the show beyond that a very vague doctor who connection is that rehearsals for the pilot begun on november the 22nd 1963 the date of the assassination of JFK. I think possibly my favourite character is one I've not mentioned yet and that is Serena who is Samantha's identical cousin. Uh, But yes, she's also played by Elizabeth Montgomery and I always remember when I watched the show I just loved how different Samantha and Serena were and I think even at quite a young age I was aware that it must have been quite good fun to be playing such a a different character because Serena is, you know, definitely a product of her time. Also a witch but also very much part of the 60s into the 70s in that she's very sort of um, groovy. Yeah, Um, whereas Samantha's a little bit more square. Um, Anyway, there's loads of things I could say about this show. With all these episodes, there really is a lot. So I thought I'd just focus on Halloween episodes of the show. Now, I'm kind of taking this from the episode guide. I do own the complete set of Bewitched, but I haven't watched them all through, not recently. Although, over the years, I've probably seen most of them. I'm sure the earlier ones are probably the ones that people regard most highly, but because I've always been a fan of the 60s when it gets really 60s, I always tend to gravitate to the maybe 66, 67 onwards. As it, when the fashions get a bit more... I'm using that word again. When the fashions get a little bit more groovy. But, uh... I'm also aware that the more the series goes on, the more it ends up remaking episodes of itself. And I believe uh, it also remakes some episodes of I Love Lucy because the the company who made the show also made I Love Lucy. So anyway, as I was saying, as I haven't watched every single episode, I am taking this from the episode guide. And I'm just going to give a few little points of what I like about each of these episodes. From what I can tell, there aren't eight Halloween episodes. I may be wrong. It may be that the plotline doesn't look Halloween-y, but actually the episode is. But I'm just going to cover the five episodes that appear to be Halloween specials. So the first season, episode seven, is uh, a Halloween episode. It was broadcast on uh, October the 29th, 1964. It was directed by William Asher, who uh, I believe directed a great deal of the episodes and was also Elizabeth Montgomery's husband. So... The 1964 season one Halloween episode is called The Witches Are Out and the plot is as follows. Darren's latest client wants to use a stereotypical ugly witch to promote his Halloween candy. Samantha is understandably upset as are Bertha, Mary and Aunt Clara, a trio of elderly witches who have dealt with prejudice for quite some time. When Darren is fired for creating a campaign with a beautiful curvaceous witch, the foursome team up to give the client a taste of his own medicine this is the first episode which includes aunt clara who is um the sort of nervous stammering witch that um is often associated with the show although she was only in the early seasons really
5: should not Aunt clara be here by now she certainly should you know i worry about that woman every time she steps out of the house she's getting on you know and she's Well, let's be frank. She's gone a little funny. And stubborn. I offered to pick her up, but no, she insisted on flying by herself. (laughs) Have either of you flown with Clara lately? Not lately. Suicide. Plain suicide. All oh, right, Aunt Clara, what happened? Well, oh, I got the spell all wrong, and I, I got all mixed in the spell, and I got landed in the f- middle of the freeway. Oh, uh, good gracious. Well, here, we'll just get you straightened out. And we'll come on, in, Now in, 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 it only don't look lovely. Let's yeah. dust you off it's a little bit. Here. How could you? You, of all people, you should know better. That's the kind of thing we're trying to fight. What are you talking about? That picture, it's offensive offensive is that how you think i look will you calm down well Simon. do you of course not then why did you do it because that's the way most people think witches look is that any reason to discriminate against a minority group what minority group witches of course <laughs>
7: it's quite a funny one this one it's nice to see aunt clara the only negative thing really is that my version is the colorized version so it looks a bit weird but it's quite nice to see some other witches in this episode and also some more old school witches who uh aren't quite so worried about whether they uh, use magic to make a cup of tea. So, moving along to season two. uh, Season two also has a Halloween episode. This season was broadcast between 1965 and 1966. But, uh, once again, it's the seventh episode of the season, the 43rd episode in total, and it was broadcast on the 28th of October 1965. It's called Trick or Treat. So the plot of Trick or Treat is... When Darren refuses to let Samantha go to a witch's Halloween ceremony, Dora turns him in to a werewolf. Sounds good to me.
5: I am not going to the sacred volcano with you, Mother. Well, I'm not going to have you stay and be hurt by all those children dressed like old crones. Oh, no. I'm not going to leave Darren. Besides, we're having company. You're having a party on Halloween? <laughs> Isn't a party. We're just having the Tates and a client and his wife for dinner. You're actually taking part in their barbaric customs. When I married Darren, it was for better or for worse. Halloween is part of the worse. I i see a daughter of mine condoning bigotry. I don't condone it. Anyway, Darren is not bigoted. He understands my problem perfectly.
7: This was another good episode, another colourised one, I'm afraid, but uh, that didn't bother you. It was interesting to see Endora actually in street clothes for a change when she was... Uh, mixing with the, uh, the the Halloween goers outside the house uh, and also turn herself into a little girl who had her same hairstyle. Uh, Darren's attempts to sort of um, curtail his werewolf transformation uh, when, when he had business clients turn up at the house was good fun. He kept growing talons and teeth and although he could uh, shave off the uh, the fur... I'd shave the fur off his fingers uh, and trim the claws they kept coming back so excuses had to be made yes, a good fun episode
5: You're going to be a werewolf
7: Season 3 also has a Halloween episode this is the 66th to 67th season and sure enough it's the 7th episode of the season the 81st episode in total it's actually the second part of a, a two part story, but uh, this second part is called Twitch or Treat, and uh, it was screened on the 27th of October 1966. As I say, although it says it's the second part of a story, the plot reads In the show's third Halloween episode, Endora zaps her house from the previous episode back to the vacant lot. Darren is furious and so agrees to allow the party to be held at his house if she undoes the spell uncle arthur insists on being invited to the party and is joined by many mysterious guests including boris his feline companion gladys kravitz again has the authorities investigate the strange goings on
5: you know what i mean what if somebody finds out what'll you tell them well people expect strange things to happen on halloween besides nobody's gonna find out greetings folks have you heard the glad tidings? And Dora, mother of Samantha Stevens, suburban housewife, is giving a Halloween party this evening. The catch to the story is that the guests will be real witches. <laughs> Fuck up, Darren. It's gonna be a ball. <laughs> they, you know I'm in the midst of all my party preparations. Mother, Darren is very upset. It's always nice to hear news like that, dear. But I have all sorts of chores to do.
7: The third Halloween episode was uh, also very good fun. Uh, Quite different from the other two. They were actually having to throw a Halloween party at Samantha and Darren's house, which meant all manner of strange people showing up and lots of cattiness between Uncle Arthur and Endora. She's
8: joking. (laughs) She's not very good at it, but that's what she's doing. (laughs)
7: Moving on now to season 4, the 67 to 68 seasons. Our Halloween episode in this season is episode 8, the 115th episode in total. It was screened on the 26th of October 1967 and it's called The Safe and Sane Halloween. The plot description says, The show's fourth Halloween episode. Samantha takes Tabitha trick-or-treating after she conjures up three ghouls from a storybook. A goblin, a gremlin, and a jack-o'-lantern. Mrs. Crarritz's nephew, Tommy, gets mixed up in the ordeal when one of the ghouls turns him into a billy goat.
5: Suddenly the steeple clock struck midnight as the children watched the bright bonfire three creatures seemed to jump out of the flickering flames. The children shivered as if a cold wind had passed over them. There was a gremlin... A goblin and a jack-o'-lantern see the jack-o-lantern? jack-o'-lantern that's right and there's the goblin and the gremlin well your friends are pretty scary sweetheart <laughs> if i didn't know you were a goblin i would say you were little billy watkins well whoever you are would you like to go trick-or-treating with tabitha
7: this halloween episode is uh, <laughs> extra cute because tabitha takes uh, a role in it as she conjures some gremlins and pixies and whatnot out of a storybook. And then a boy who's dressed like a jack-o'-lantern, very similar to the jack-o'-lantern from the book, swaps around. I must say the goblin looks a little bit like a yeti, but... uh, (laughs) It looks like a a ball of grey fur, to be quite honest. It may be a relative of mine. I want
5: to be a monster! For that, you don't need a costume,
7: So we're on to season five, the 68 to 69 season. And from what I can tell, there, there was no Halloween episode this year. There's an episode that was screened on the 24th of October, 68, but that, well, doesn't seem to be a Halloween episode. It mentions the witches Council, but as I say, with a series that's <laughs> supernatural anyway, um, I, we could take it as a Halloween episode. But <laughs> no, I want to do ones where they're doing particularly I'm making it a big plot point. The next episode after that, isn't screened until the 7th of November so it really does look as if um, there is no Halloween episode in 1968 Moving on to season 6 which was screened between 1969 and 1970 I find that we we do have a Halloween episode this season Once again this is the 7th episode of the season the 177th episode in all It was directed by William Asher And it was um, screened on the 30th of October, 1969. It's called To Trick or Treat, or Not To Trick or Treat. The plot is as follows. It's a bit of a paragraph, this one. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. Endora is furious that Samantha and Tabitha are celebrating Halloween with negative witch stereotypes, prompting a big fight between Darren and his mother-in-law. She retaliates by turning Darren into a stereotypical witch. To have her break the spell... Samantha agrees to cancel the Halloween festivities even though she is taking part in a trick or treat for the UNICEF committee this causes trouble with a client whose wife is also on the committee and uh, it mentions here that Elizabeth Montgomery was a UNICEF supporter in real life it's interesting to note how far in advance they were recording episodes it says that the Halloween episode was recorded on the 11th of September 1969 so yeah about six weeks or so before screening
5: of all this mother you know perfectly well that those are Halloween costumes perfectly harmless and unrealistic and discriminatory against a minority group (gasps) you of all people Tabitha why don't you run upstairs and play I think maybe grandma would like to have a little talk (laughs) Samantha will you please explain the meaning of these dunce caps and these hideous masks? Well, Mother, it's all for a good cause. I'm helping out on the trick-or-treat for UNICEF committee, and I, I was just making some of the costumes for the neighbourhood kids. Oh, that's a tawdry excuse. I know very well who's behind this. It's Durwood. He's brainwashed you. So mother Darren will hear you. I heard her, I heard her. There's more, there's more.
7: The season six Halloween episode definitely... Reemphasizes the idea that uh, the traditional witchy look is not to be encouraged it also has some resemblance to the episode we mentioned earlier where Darren gets turned into a werewolf whereas in this one he gets turned into a witch which <laughs> which um, also has a lot of comedy potential which has him growing traditionally witchy uh, fingernails long hair and uh, a nose with a wart on the end of it uh, Though most people just think he's dressing up in costume we're on to the second Darren by this point So, uh, things are a little bit different. But as usual, there's a lot going on.
5: Mother?
7: Don't you go too far! Well, I'm afraid that's sort of um, almost it. We certainly won't be talking about the uh, 2005 movie with Nicole Kidman. But, uh, no, I was checking season seven which was screened between 1970 and 1971 does not appear to have a proper halloween episode although there's a bit of a subplot uh in the early parts of season seven where samantha and darren go to salem so that the episode screened around halloween on the 29th of october it's more about this trip to salem no real mention of halloween and i'm afraid the same occurs in season eight Uh, screened between 71 and 72. There's an episode screened on the 27th of October 71 called The Ghost Who Made a Spectre of Himself. I think we'll end with a clip from this, although not a Halloween episode. It is sort of um, apt uh, because the early part of season eight sees Darren and Samantha going on a trip around Europe. There are episodes supposedly set in Paris, uh, in Italy, uh, Loch Ness, um, and are not very Halloween episode- 1971 is described as a lovesick ghost haunting a british castle possesses darren's body to be near samantha but she is not fooled when she rejects the advances the ghost still in darren's body tries to woo louise tate what's louise tate doing there does she go as well good grief
0: we conclude our tour of witset castle with a look at some of our ancestral portraits this is harry the eighth duke of witset Quite a ladies' man, Harry.
7: He was killed in Mortal combat. It's my theory that Harry's our ghost. There's a ghost here? One of the most active in the land. So, although our uh, <laughs> our not-Halloween episode for Season 8 went out around the time of Halloween, it uh, does have plenty of ghosts in it, and um, is set in a spooky castle in England uh, where they're eating souffle and kidney pie goodness knows what happened to the steak don't think i've ever had a a kidney pie all by itself it's a fun episode with lots of slapstick and farce but not really a halloween episode i had to have a little look at it as it was supposedly set in the uk the only evidence of that was some stock footage of some buses going down the strand which was probably uh, taken a good 10 years before the making of this episode
5: holding it down a bit you're disturbing everybody's sleep
2: that's what i'm supposed to do and you are supposed to be frightened i usually terrify the average mortal
5: well i'm not your average mortal i'm a witch a witch
7: (laughs) you've got to be joking okay listeners um that's it for now um you're lucky i didn't give you a whistle stop tour of all 245 episodes i just stuck to the halloween ones and associated (laughs) okie dokie have a happy Halloween and I'll speak to you again soon right, bye bye for now
3: Thanks to Paul for that lovely article.
2: I've got an image of him at the end just riding off on his broomstick sideways waving. (laughs) (laughs) With Delia on the back. Yeah, I can easily imagine that. (laughs) And now Andy Priestner returns to look at... Bergerac.
8: Bow, bow. There was a time in the 80s when the adventures of Jersey-based detective Jim Bergerac of the Bureau des Etrangers, foreigners' office sounds much less exotic, were required viewing. Jim would tackle a wide variety of criminals and crimes, murders, robberies, kidnap, while his ex-wife, girlfriends and good old Charlie Hunkford always got involved to a greater or lesser degree. It was, on the surface, a cop show with a rather straightforward format. However, occasional episodes suggested it had the ambition to be something more. As a result, Bergerac was often sometimes far better and memorable than it had any need to be. What other detective drama has specific episodes that you can still remember all these years later? Now, I won't spend much time here giving the history of the series. We all know it was created by Robert Banks Stewart, who wrote the Doctor Who stories, Terror of the Zygons, and Seeds of Doom. Instead, I'll point you back to episode 13 of Round the Archives, where you can listen to Paul's article, and you can fill in all those blanks. Instead, for this piece, Andrew and Lisa have kindly given me the green light to look at one episode in particular. But which episode to choose? Decisions, decisions. I was sorely tempted to take a look at one of the terrifically entertaining episodes with Lisa Goddard as Philippa Vale, who was nicknamed the Ice Maiden. Her best episodes are probably Sparta or Treasure Hunt, and proved that Goddard was just as good at acting as Sherrard's.
0: It was a stupid thing to do. Stupid and bloody
8: dangerous.
5: I'm not sure I'm altogether answerable to you for my actions, Sergeant. Not answerable? Do you know, as far as my chief
2: inspector is concerned, I'm at this moment in bed with a bad case of flu. I hope he never checks it out. Well, you didn't have to come. No, oh, I didn't have to come. I just had this rather perverse idea that I'd rather not stumble across you
8: lying about somewhere with a bullet through your head.
3: Oh, Sergeant. Our first
0: quarrel. Do you ever listen?
8: Those instalments which see Louise Jameson as Jim's girlfriend Susan Young take centre stage also deserve mention, such as the one in which she's almost murdered while trying to sell a bungalow, the brilliant and desirable little residence, or towards the end of their time in the series, when she's memorably framed for murder, the other woman.
6: Now tell me, truthfully, did you ever write a letter, any letter, to Graham Hawksworth that can't answer the question?
5: No, I didn't.
6: Did you ever
0: receive a letter from him?
5: No! Why should I have?
0: Your spade has turned up. Where? Near to the scene of the crime. It could be the murder weapon. That's the last thing I wanted to find I was actually looking for something to clear you.
3: Clear me? I told you I was at the hotel.
0: The people there don't remember you.
3: I don't believe this. What's going on
0: here? Well, I don't know. But if you feel there's something you ought to tell me. Well,
3: of course there's nothing I ought to tell you. What should I have to tell you? I didn't
5: do it. I didn't
3: do it.
8: And then there's those episodes that just stand out because they were so different or had odd subject matter, such as the witty episode with the gay horse, a horse of a different colour. Oi, get off! Thought he said my horse was supposed to be a fella.
3: It is. Oh, James. Crimson Cavalier. I think gay Cavalier might be more appropriate.
8: But in the end, I always knew there was just one obvious choice for this article. The episode which is widely regarded as the high watermark of the series. Arguably, Bergerac's most memorable tale. The creepy feature length, Fires in the Fall, by Chris Boucher.
3: Sing a song of seasons, something bright in all. Flowers in the sun.
8: By this point in the run, between series four and five, Bergerac was an established show with a core cast of characters, all of whom knew exactly what they were doing. Most especially John Nettles as Bergerac, and Louise Jameson as Susan, who have a great chemistry, and are clearly enjoying themselves in their roles enormously.
2: I hate this sort of thing.
8: What, detective work?
0: Dinner parties?
3: Ghosts and ghoulies.
0: Just because you're selling haunted houses these days? You think
3: this is a big joke, don't you?
0: No, just a medium joke.
3: The fact that someone committed suicide there is just a coincidence? Yes. Lil thinks so too.
0: Well, perhaps I should take her with me.
3: Be my guest.
0: Trouble is, she hasn't got your sense of humour.
3: (gasps) Boom! That is not funny.
8: We also have Jim's father-in-law, Charlie Hungerford, played by Terence Alexander, Bergerac's ex-wife, the deeply annoying Deborah, and their dull daughter, Kim. Meanwhile, at the bureau, there's boss Barney, played by Sean Arnold. Secretary Peggy, who later becomes a love interest for Charlie, and at this point, a couple of unmemorable detective constables for Jim. He would later get the much more interesting Willie Pettit and Ben Lomas, but they're a series or two away yet. I'm afraid I also have to mention here the semi-regular waste of space that is Mella White's Diamante Lil, who should take the accolade for being the least integral character in a drama series in TV history. I note she was written out soon afterwards, and quite right too. Fires in the Fall was first broadcast on Boxing Day 1986 and was one of several Bergerac Christmas specials. Rather than going all festive on us, there's not a paper hat or sprig of mistletoe in sight, Boucher decides to riff off M.R. James instead, and chooses to give us a Bergerac ghost story for Christmas. This wasn't Bergerac's first foray into the supernatural, however. The previous year's What Dreams May Come by Brian Finch had incorporated a black magic coven headed by a cult writer Bart Bellow, played by Charles Gray, and it wouldn't be its last. Later in 1990, there was The Dig by John Colley, set around an ill-fated archaeological dig directed by Doctor Who the Movie's Jeffrey Sachs. It's worth noting that writer John Colley also wrote several other splendid Bergeracs, including the aforementioned The Other Woman and the equally memorable Sins of Forgiveness, about a Nazi hunter played by none other than John Bennett. Collie is now best known for writing the blockbuster Happy Feet. I'm not entirely sure if that's a step up from Bergerac, though. This episode's writer, Chris Boucher, needs little introduction to listeners of this podcast. Writer of Who's Face of Evil and Robots of Death, and script editor and writer of Blake Seven, Chris had, of course, written for Louise Jameson many times before.
5: Bring that! I didn't kill him! I didn't kill him!
7: Pity,
8: but no... Back then to Fires in the Fall, its guest cast is really rather good. We have Mrs Pomfrey from All Creatures Great and Small, uh, Margaretta Scott, who plays Roberta Jardine. There's also an early role for Amanda Redman as her niece Pauline, and a late one for Secret Army's Ron Pember as a former copper with respiratory problems. The principal guest star here is Barry Ingham. Ingham is probably best known to culty types like us for playing Paris in The Missing Doctor Who, The Myth He is, by the way, marvellous in that, because Paris is an obvious but lovable idiot, who Stephen runs rings round by playing to his vanity. I urge you to listen to that.
0: Just before you start sneering at this prisoner, perhaps you should know that his name is Diomedy. But If you look in the Greek army list, you'll see he's quite a catch. Which none but you could have caught, O Lion of Troy.
5: What oh. oh, that? <laughs>
0: well, there you are, you see. <laughs> right, go on, go on. Tell them, Diomede, We port... I lost. I am not ashamed. There is none in all our ranks who could stand against the wrath of Paris when he seeks revenge. <sighs> Very good. Very good, yeah. There you are. You see, I am treated with more respect by the enemy than I am by my own family. Uh. They
2: don't know you as
3: well as we do.
8: But Ingham is probably better remembered for playing the golden-haired Aladon in the Doctor Who in the Dark's feature film. Here, Ingham plays a fraudulent psychic called Raoul Barnaby who claims to be able to converse with the dead, and is creepily good at speaking with the voices of dead children. Always a good skill to have.
2: Now, I can see why she hides her face. There's fire. She
3: is afraid of the fires.
1: (sighs) Ah.
8: Oh, I'm tired.
0: There'll be no more contact tonight. The fact that his
8: character is called Barnaby feels weird now, though, because Bergerac has lots of scenes in which he says the name, and of course, it was the surname of John Nettle's own character in Midsummer Murders. Another who actor who turns up is Nicholas McArdle, who was the ill fated De Vries in Stones of Blood. Sadly, here, though, he isn't responsible for any sacrificial shenanigans. It's high time I told you what the episode's actually about. In essence, it's about a long game on the part of Barnaby and Pauline, characters who pretend not to know each other, but in reality are a former magic act partnership, think Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee, who are now working together so that Pauline can get her hands on her aunt Roberta's fortune, using Barnaby's fake medium powers to spook her. The death of a 10-year-old girl, Jane Smith, in a haystack fire years earlier is the story's catalyst, and ultimately it is revealed that Mrs Pomfrey, sorry, Roberta, has been paying people off, and generally covering up the fact for years that it was her pyromaniac son who accidentally murdered the young girl, Jane Smith, but didn't subsequently com- commit suicide as she'd always claimed. When Barnaby gives her a message from her dead son, she smells a rat. After all, she knows that her son is safely cooped up in a Swiss sanatorium. But by now, it's much too late for her to avoid being bumped off by her evil niece. And yeah, Amanda Redmond is that evil niece a rather nasty scene in which she pushes Roberta down a staircase. You.
1: It was you all the time.
3: Grotesquely ordinary me. You and Barnaby. Sing a song of season, something bright in all. If you
5: think you're going to drive me out of my mind.
3: Oh no, Auntie. That's not what I planned at all. Oh.
8: Elsewhere, Louise Jameson's Susan Young, an estate agent by profession, enters the plot when she tries to sell off a house she knows to be haunted to the dreadful Diamante Lille. Susan has a spooky moment in the attic, which is hard to explain away and is terrified out of her skin when she tries to leave the house, and a hand grabs her shoulder. <laughs> This time it's just Lil in the hallway with her, but later it will be someone else. While being spooked, Susan spots a weird fire mark in the attic, which is also seen incised into the table during a rather inevitable seance sequence at Charlie Hungerford's house.
2: Is there anyone there who wants a message from
3: Jane? I know a Jane at school. She'd be more likely to use the phone, dear. <laughs>
8: Later on, it turns up at Barnaby's house too. Barnaby and Pauline claim it is their special mark, but is it? Is something else going on? Is someone else using the mark? There are also a lot of fires being lit around the island, as Barnaby predicted there would be during one of his medium sessions. But is it him and Pauline who are behind them? At Roberta's funeral, Kim Bergerac finally gets something to do, when she spots a creepy monk figure watching them. Who is the monk? Surely it's either Barnaby or Pauline dressed up.
3: Only I thought I saw something as well. Saw so what? It's like
0: a ghost. You're in the right place for it, aren't you? Yeah.
8: Both are soon in the clear on this front because Barnaby is bumped off when his car is set on fire by the mystery monk, much to Pauline's horror. This sequence is really nicely directed, and the car explosion is really terrific, and the death, pretty macabre. As the episode reaches its climax, a confused message about where Jim should meet Susan leads her to being back at the haunted house, but this time, she's alone. Well, not entirely alone. She has company in the form of the hooded monk, who proceeds to terrify her out of her wits by chasing her around the house. Trusty horror tropes at the ready. We look on, as the audience, possibly from behind a cushion, as she tries to flee the house, while eventually her pursuer runs across the hallway towards her. It's very well done, and when we watched it last week, my 11-year-old son was squealing with excitement. Susan escapes the monk's clutches just as Jim arrives, and we see that the monk has a disfigured face, but then he flees the scene. Clearly a Miss Marple or Poirot fan, Bergerac proceeds to trick Amanda Redmond's Pauline into confessing to Roberta's murder by having one of his officers dress as the sinister monk. But what became of the real monk? The simple explanation is that it's Roberta's son. But this episode has a supernatural twist up its sleeve. It's gross incompetence.
2: If you say so, and you probably will. Well, what would you call it? <laughs> puzzling.
6: Puzzling. Despite all your efforts to catch him,
1: he manages to get himself back to his Swiss
0: sanatorium. I don't call that puzzling. Neither do I. <laughs> what is puzzling is that the sanatorium authorities are absolutely convinced that he never left.
8: The episode oozes atmosphere, and most of the performances are great. Of the guest cast, Barry Ingham and Margareta Scott are probably the strongest, and it's pretty obvious that Amanda Redmond will have her career ahead of her too. Of the regulars, Louise Jameson is of course stunningly good, and if I'm honest, she was the main reason I tuned in back in the day. And John Nettles is a charismatic and reliable series lead. He does wear horrible brown polyester trousers sometimes, but as this is the mid-80s, this should probably be forgiven. Nettles manages to imbue him with the necessary maverick edge and charm expected of these 80s and 90s male-led cop shows, but he also manages to project an intimacy and intensity that is probably due to his theatre background and pedigree. I don't think Bergerac was ever intended to be high art, and I'd argue that in series publicity far too much attention was paid to the Jersey location. It always looked quite cold and grey to me. The series' real joy was in its development of identifiable characters and intriguing plots. It may be over 30 years old, but Fires in the Fall still has the power to engage, and during the denouement, at the haunted house, even to thrill. A quick Twitter search earlier today revealed that several people also remembered Fires in the Fall, some talking about how much it had terrified them, others describing it as the best Bergerac there is. Watching it again this week, I'd heartily recommend it for a cosy winter night in in front of the telly. This 90 minutes spent in the company of Jim and Susan comes highly recommended.
3: Sing a song of seasons, something bright in all. Flowers in the summer, fires in the fall.
2: Many thanks to Andy for that.
3: Yes, thank you, Andy. Another lovely article.
2: And now, Simon and Ken of the Exton Moss Experiment return to look at. The Trapdoor.
1: The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone and welcome to another Exton Moss Experiment segment for Around the Archives. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And today we are looking at the children's classic from the 1980s, The Trapdoor. Come here, you ingredient! Burk! This <laughs> <laughs> This is a stop motion animation uh kiddies series. It was broadcast on ITV for two seasons, 40 episodes from 1986. 1989. It was actually made in 1984, but it wasn't broadcast for a couple of years later. Yeah. Largely centres on little blue servant who lives in a basement of a castle who is the overworked slave of the thing that lives upstairs the character that's never seen. Despite protestations from the rest of the supporting characters, there's a trap door that should never be opened, and in each of the episodes, Burke leaves it open and something crawls out. That's about the extent of the premise of the show. The, each yeah, there's a floating
6: of, skeleton called Boney as well. Boney
1: and Drott, and who is a spider, no, and obviously a spider. But the voices were largely provided by Willie Rushton, who was a satirist uh, at the time and worked for Private Eye. Also, which I didn't realise, Nick Shipley, who provided a few of the other voices, and he also worked on Private Eye.
6: Okay, and Willie Rushton was one of the um, regulars. Um, that was the week that was.
1: And, um, is it was it on, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue as well.
6: Oh, could have been. Most people were at, at some point in that sort of era. I wasn't as taken with, with that as I was by... I'm um, sorry, I'll read that again.
1: <clears throat> I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, yeah. That was, uh, yeah. For 22 years, it was on that. So before we launch, because we're going to start with the first episode, they're only four minutes long, so we'll have a look at that and see how it's aged. I imagine it's aged terribly well, because we both have a fond memory of this. Before we go headlong into that, we should dive into the gin bottle. So I'll get the tonic screwdriver out and open up another bottle.
6: And today we're drinking whitley Neal Harrington Dry Gin.
1: Which is a very nice gin. It is. There's nothing exceptional um, and different about the taste of today. A very nice plain gin, although... I wouldn't say it's that dry, actually, no, compared neither would to a others know.
6: we've had recently. I mean, it's a very nicely balanced gin, but there's some de- definitely some sweet flavour in, mm. in there. It, it It's made a, a lovely tonic. I, I think it would be swamped if you were to do anything else with it. So if you were to put it into a, a martini, I think it would completely lose all its character. It's,
1: well, this is why I'm really reluctant to mix gins with botanicals, unless they are. They need a bit of a pep, because you just... Completely lose the flavour of the gin. That doesn't need anything. That's no. just a very nice gin on its own. But
6: there are some that have very strong flavours that work really well in a um, in a martini. Yes, there so are. So you yeah. you sort of slightly more oily Plymouth type gins work really well as martinis.
1: Yes, and I'm I'm going to give a second twist of the knife to Mason's Yorkshire Tea Gin. You're not gonna let this go. I'm not gonna people. let it go. I it's the first gin that I've given one out of five on our Bernard scale.
6: It's been my low gin. scoring as well. It wasn't nice.
1: It was unpleasant. And I really didn't want it to be a tea flavoured gin. It sounds fantastic. It was awful. Which we've managed to rescue this afternoon in a teapot. Cramming it full of other flavours to, yes. to drown it out. I'm not wasting gin. See I, I That do, is to your credit. That's four out of five Bernards for me. And me too. And that one is Warner's. This is Warner Edwards. Harrington dry gin Splendid While we savour this And before we open the trap door We need to open the Black Archive We room. do really Black Archive is a regular section That we do And we rescue long lost programmes From the Black Archive To put back out into the public domain In our minds So my choice for this Edition is going to be Doctor Who, the single episode story Mission to the Unknown. Now, the reason for that is that it's the only episode of Doctor Who where none of the regulars appear. It was a one episode sort of prequel story to The Daleks' Master Plan. Bit of an oddity, but it, it serves as a sort of an introduction to the 12 episode epic. But recently, my old university, University of Central Lancashire, have remounted this with cameras from the time and they've reconstructed props from the time and the sets all to scale, all in detail, even down to the costumes of the alien delegates that are present in that episode and we've yet to see it because it's only just been done but Peter Purvis was involved, Edward D'Souza was involved and all the comments so far that it's wonderful. Now it's still never going to make up for the original the real thing but I wouldn't mind seeing it I wouldn't mind pulling that out of the Black Archive to see what it actually looked like because we've got the audio. Yeah. What's your choice?
6: My choice for the uh, to come out of the Archive this time around is a 1960s kids uh, sci-fi TV series called Emerald Soup. Uh, None of this exists it was an ITV programme that concerned weird goings-on at a scientific research research establishment and for some obscure reason a a group of local kids get involved with what's going on very well received at the time it had some some good reviews people I've heard kids in the 60s talked about it very very fondly and I don't think apart from a a very few production stills anything of it exists so that would be very nice to see another
1: little gap filled it is so without further ado, it's time to close the black archive and open, open the, the trapdoor. Trap
0: Somewhere in the dark and nasty regions where nobody goes stands an ancient castle. Deep within this dank and uninviting place lives Burke. Hello! Overworked servant of the thing upstairs. Burke, feed <laughs> me! But that's nothing compared to the horrors that lurk beneath the trapdoor, for there is always something down there, in the dark, waiting to come out.
1: That was the very first episode of Trapdoor Breakfast Time from 1980, well, made in 84, uh, transmitted in 86. It was a lovely four-minute piece of fluff.
6: Yes, thoroughly enjoyable, very catchy theme tune.
1: Although we did have to look for it. If, you get, if anybody's got the DVD or thinking about it...
6: Yeah, they hide the theme tune. It's there once you've looked for
1: it. But anyone who grew up with it, that theme tune will trigger tea time memories. after Coming on from school.
6: Yeah, you see, I remember it at the time. I wasn't at school. I left school in 1986. So I, was, I was working at the time that this was coming out. And I remember one of the girls I worked with, Belinda, who was obsessed with the trapdoor and made us all watch it. <laughs> I was the only one who, who didn't regard it as... Utter children's fluff, but they're they're all claymation, I suppose. Yeah, because yeah, it or
1: But there's this and a lot of the Cosgrove Hall stuff. It's all in the same vein of humour, slightly off the wall, but all of that. Obviously, this is plasticine rather than animated, but the humour's broadly the same.
6: Yeah, it was just really nostalgic to see Burke and the thing upstairs <laughs> and Boney. and Bony was always my favourite because he's just. Sits in the background and makes sarcastic comments.
1: <laughs> I wonder why he's your favourite character.
6: <laughs> I've always aspired for that to be my role in life.
1: Yeah, there's not a lot to say about Trapdoor. If you didn't grow up with it, you'll probably look at it and think, what the hell is this? If you did grow up with it, you'll watch one and think, ah, oh, there'll be a little warm glow inside. Yeah,
6: this and Count Duckula.
1: Yes, and to a lesser extent, Alias the Jester. Uh, and. Um, did, to a lesser extent, Man. what? Alias the Jester. That was a Cosgrove ball thing.
6: Oh, um, never heard of it. And Danger Mouse. Danger
1: Mouse. And Penfold. Who blinked his eyeballs. What? If you watch, Penfold didn't blink. His actual eyeballs blinked. Have a look at it. Okay. Um, he wore glasses. Mm. You didn't see his eyes. You just saw his, his actual pupils. And the pupils blinked. His eyes didn't. How bizarre. Mm. Anyway, that's enough fluff.
6: Yeah, this is just a a very very quick segment um, to say we've watched it, we've loved it. I'm disappointed that my favourite line wasn't in there, which was "Come here, you ingredient." Because <laughs> um, in in this one, actually, in this one, actually, two things come out of the trapdoor, don't they?
1: There's the big yellow thing. The
6: big yellow thing that eats the thing upstairs is breakfast, and then falls asleep in front of the oven. And, then and there's the big red thing. And then while Burke is trying to deal with that, a big ugly <coughs> red thing comes out of the, uh, the trapdoor and chases him around a bit. He hides behind a mirror, sees itself in the mirror, gets scared, and runs back down into the trapdoor. Close the trapdoor. End of episode. So not challenging plot-wise.
1: There may be an overarching umbrella theme as the series progresses, with complex characters and enough backstory to have a spin-off sequel. Mm-hmm. But I doubt it. No,
6: it's weird bits of plasticine that make us happy.
1: And in life, if you've got gin and weird plasticine.
6: You're doing pretty well.
1: On that note, boys and girls, we shall sure. hand you back over to the capable hands of Andy and Lisa. Thank you for once again for letting us break into your time. We shall see you again soon. Okay, bye
6: now.
1: The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rishton, Lancashire and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmosexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook. Thank you again, Simon and Ken. Yes,
3: thank you, boys.
1: And they will be back very soon, I think. yes.
3: yes.
2: Now, from... A podcast named after the Quatermass experiment. Mm -hmm. Martin Holmes returns to look at
3: Quatermass in the Pit.
0: I have to say from the outset that I absolutely adore the original television serial version of Quatermass and the Pit. So this is unlikely to be an unbiased piece. From way back in 1979 when I picked up the Arrow reissues of the script books I found the story irresistible and large chunks of it made their way into my college thesis six or seven years later. Later on I pounced upon the first omnibus VHS release and adored it so much that I double dipped for the DVD version when that came out a decade later and then triple dipped when the restored episodic version came out a few years after that. It is, quite frankly, an utterly brilliant piece of television and, as I've stated on numerous occasions in the past, is an absolute masterclass in writing for television and in creating a growing sense of unease and tension without having to overstate anything or needing any shouty standoffs or have any helicopters explode for dramatic effect. Oh, okay. A freighter aircraft is caused to crash by the manifestation of Hob, which occurs quite late in the story, but that's not really what I meant. The tension simply drip feeds, and the astonishing jigsaw of what's going on relies upon the assumption that the viewers are intelligent enough to grasp hold of the subtle nuances and occasional nuggets of information in order to put the various pieces together for themselves. It is, quite simply, masterful. Long ago, alien creatures from the dying world of Mars manipulated and enhanced ancient humans in a way that meant their Martian philosophy would outlive their own civilization. Over the centuries, the descendants of those humans have spread across the entire Earth, and the divisive violence against those unlike themselves, which once maintained the racial purity of the ancient Martian hives, has continued to manifest itself in humanity's worst crimes against itself. Meanwhile, at the crash site of one of the old Martian spacecraft, The symbiotic nature of the living hull buried deep underground has led to centuries of psychic manifestations of their ancient evil. To place this serial in context, the two previous Quatermass serials had come first in the early 1950s, at around the time of the coronation of uh, Queen Elizabeth II, pretty much the dawn of the era of a more widespread domestic television in uh, Britain, and second in the mid-50s when America was in the grip of McCarthyism and such fears of the so-called Red Menace were contagious. The first series involved a British space rocket built by Bernard Quatermass and his British rocket group. Bringing back an alien parasite when it crash landed back on Earth, and the second involved a creeping alien menace possessing humans with a view to colonising the Earth for their own needs. The Professor himself had already been played by two different actors, three of you include the two Hammer film adaptations the second of whom, John Robinson, had been a last-minute replacement when the original actor, Reginald Tate, had died just before filming began. For international marketing reasons, the American actor, Brian Donlevy, had played the professor in the two movies, but Nigel Neal intensely disliked his performance, and, to be honest, the British public were unlikely to accept that our rocket programme needed rescuing by an American, especially in a series in which he'd been established as resolutely British. In his introduction to that 1979 edition, Nigel Neal stated, the idea made a third Quatermass story possible without dropping too obviously into repetition. It had to be about alien visitation, of course, and the professor instrumental in coping. Those elements were inescapable. But whereas the first serial dealt with a contact in real time, and the second one with an invasion already established for a year, This would be long after the event. The intrusion would have come five million years in the past, when no resistance was possible, so that it succeeded wholly and built certain undesirable characteristics into Earth's future population. Quatermass would be fighting his own heredity, a new pattern. As ever, Mr Neil always puts it so eloquently that I might as well shut up now. But, as that would make this piece rather short, I'd better soldier on. After a sudden realisation I made in the summer, I became aware that the first episode of Quatermass and the Pit, directed by Rudolf Cartier and written by Nigel Neal, was broadcast on the 22nd of December in 1958, earning it a place as a Christmas special in my book. And having watched it again, I became very aware that in that brilliant first episode, The Half Men, nothing very much actually happens, and yet it remains utterly mesmerising and perhaps still quite terrifying in its own way, and still stands up as 35 minutes of creeping intensity. Now, you could argue that this is all down to expectation, not audiences in 1958 had already seen the two previous Quatermass serials around three-year intervals over the course of the 1950s and therefore would have been expecting something rather special and perhaps a little bit creepy. People talked about Quatermass and it was very much the event television of its day with meetings rescheduled and pubs emptying when it was on. A later episode shows people watching a television show in the pub which was either a tiny bit of product placement to remind viewers that they could go out and not miss out but also serves as a reminder that not every household owned a television set even as late as 1958. Perhaps without the previous serials they might have switched on to episode one of this series and thought ho-hum but they didn't. And the reason they didn't is, in my opinion, down to two things. The first is the script, which asks many questions, answers few of them, but keeps you interested enough to want to know the answers, whilst adding layer after layer of further mysteries being discovered to make even the most derisive of viewers want to see more and find out just what is going on. The second is because of the astonishingly effective work of the newly formed BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which manages to underscore some otherwise quite ordinary-seeming scenes with unearthly sound effects that are almost guaranteed to unsettle anyone. The episode itself begins with a devastatingly disturbing piece of music that, despite the fact of that piece of music's previous association with the Quatermass character, is not that breathtaking extract from Holst's Mars the God of War that pops into my head whenever Quatermass is mentioned. This is interesting because, maybe of the three 1950s serials, this is the one most associated with the planet Mars. But there you go, that magical pairing of Neil and Cartier was never going to choose a predictable route for one of their legendary collaborations. With this theme, however, I think the notes and the tune are almost perfectly pitched to give a sense of foreboding and calamitous things about to unfold as the name of the serial emerges as the camera pans down ever deeper through the grime and rubble of the earth much as the growing menace is about to across the next six weeks. We begin in Hobbs Lane, with two B's, SW1 otherwise known as Hobbs Lane with one B, where we swiftly and convincingly cut from the studio to location footage taken at a building site where a satisfyingly diverse cast play a group of workmen using an impressive array of modern excavation machines, all but impossible to recreate inside a studio, uncover some human remains as they dig the foundations of a new office building, Baldoon House." One of the workmen, the foreman, incidentally, is played by John Ray, part of what almost seems to be the Quatermass Repertory Company, who also featured as one of the battling workers in both previous versions of Quatermass 2, and played the eyes of the Yeti in another cartier Neal collaboration, the Abominable Snowman, the year before. A lot of television producers and directors back then had their favourites, dependable, reliable actors who could be relied upon to give exactly the performance required of them. Amidst the chaos of the building site, as it cuts back to the studio set, close-ups of the found skulls are accompanied by suitably creepy music because, you know, Skulls are creepy, really, especially ones found in an unexpected place, and by this simple combination of sight and sound, the audience are immediately put on edge. This vignette is accompanied by the voices of the workmen saying worrying things like, It's all bashed in! Whilst these blue-collar characters cleverly give us a little exposition as we learn that the skulls were fossilised and possibly maybe hundreds of years old, and that they may be worth something. Which also brings a little nod towards human greed and the differences between people, even in a small cross-section of society such as this. Meanwhile, one almost impossibly older-looking workman shudders as he ventures the simple fact that he doesn't like this place. And through these simple exchanges, we've already had hints that this is indeed a troubled place. More ominous chords take us through a time-lapse as several newspaper headlines simply tell the tale of further digging and the archaeologists finding three more bodies in much the same way as they did when they dug up Reginald Halliday Christie's garden half a decade earlier and we are suddenly finding ourselves in the unsettling world of serial killer movie territory. We then find ourselves at the Nicklin Institute where a press conference is taking place for both the vulgar newspaper men and, in another hint at human social division, a slightly snooty representative from the Palaeontologist magazine. Through him, we discover that one of our heroes, Matthew Roney, played by the Canadian actor Cecil linda one day to be Felix Leiter in Goldfinger, is the foremost figure in his field. When we meet Roney, he is desperately worried, but perhaps not in the way we might expect. He needs help in being given time to complete his excavations of the site, which he believes are of unparalleled historical importance, and, to a slight air of professional derision, he suggests that the skulls discovered might be three to five million years older than any previous previous human skulls yet found. And they're British! Now, that's not what he's trying to imply. But we ought to note that mention of five million years because it's going to come up again later on. Despite the obvious scepticism he's facing, he's got his female, and therefore likely to be forgotten by scientific history assistant Barbara Judd, played with great sensitivity by Christine Flynn, to attempt a reconstruction model which is rolled in under a sheet and then revealed in a manner not unlike a magician and his glamorous assistant. Rony looks upon this half-formed clave figure with some fondness as he wheels out the sound bites, describing the figure as not tall, still having the face of an ape, but having a big brain, and in his opinion, contrary to other primates of that time, stood upright like a man, which is another description that will come back and haunt us. Next, via that time-saving and oh so clever use of another news headline, so useful in cinema storytelling back then, and another reminder of that five million years phrase we are transported to a private club where a sceptic full on doubter is reading the headlines which at least means that the press conference worked well enough one of the characters at the bar is arthur hewlett who in later years would become almost ubiquitous as the old man of the tv but he's far younger here so we begin to suspect that much like Sidney james he seems to have pretty much always looked like that And finally, a full 10 minutes and 20 seconds into the episode, we meet André Morel as yet another version of Professor Bernard Quatermass, a sage vision in a bow tie and herringbone overcoat, grabbing a plain and apparently disappointingly cheesy lunch of sandwiches at his club on the way to the war office. War, of course, being a huge topic of concern in the 1950s, with a hot one only recently over, and a cold one creeping its threat into the everyday lives of everyone, threatening to kill everyone in the era of the birth of C.N and the Aldermaston marches, and, as we will later discover, perhaps the one lasting legacy of those pesky, long-dead Reds the Martians. At the club, Professor Quatermass runs into his old friend, Rony, who seems surprised that he's off to the war office as he thought the British rocket group were a civilian outfit. Quatermass's dry response of, we were, speaks volumes of the battles he must have had in the past few years and of how any scientific discovery can get corrupted for military purposes. As he offers it to share both his sandwiches and his taxi with Rony, he makes the comment that Rony ought to feel lucky that there is no military value in fossil apes. A harmless-seeming aside, that will come back to bite them both later on. Back at the Hobbs Lane site, crowds of sightseers have gathered to try and see what excitement is afoot at this newsworthy place, and through a series of vox pops with the usual idiots who have have to be heard having nothing of any consequence to actually say, we get a little bit of story development that embraces the cutting edge of modern news media, and was still a very useful bridging device in telling a story when Russell T. Davis was giving us his vision of Doctor Who half a century later. At the Hobbs Lane site, Roney is dropped off from his shared taxi ride, and Quatermass gets a close-up as he contemplates the activities going on there before heading off to the Missile Conference at the War Office where we first meet Colonel Breen who represents another quite different human type to a affable old Quatermass and a group of idiot bureaucrats having a meeting. Anthony Bushell plays Breen and was a very respected actor and director in his day who turned up in other Nigel Neal dramas and played the captain of the Carpathia the ship that hurried to try and rescue the survivors of the Titanic disaster in an excellent 1950s British movie called A Night to Remember. Nigel Neal had already touched upon his mistrust of bureaucracies back in Quadamas two, and here they are portrayed in little better light. The scene that follows, a bunch of stuffy elderly men around a table discussing the future of the whole of humanity is long, but serves to demonstrate the two positions of the explorers and the warmongers very clearly, as well as explaining what has become of the rocket group and how its military possibilities have been spotted on are now to be exploited. Quadamas's stance would have struck a chord with many anti nuclear protesters and research scientists in the late 1950s, whilst they discuss policy, Quatermass tries to stress the intended peaceful nature of his previous work with the rocket group in what becomes an increasingly awkward meeting. A reference to missile bases on the moon and also on Mars gets an ominous close up of a picture on the wall, and whilst the powers that be talk about policing the Earth, they simply demonstrate just what aggressive warmongers they truly are, which once again serves as a foretelling of what we are still to discover is the human Martian inheritance. Quatermass is exasperated that the dead man's deterrent would allow the last vestiges of humanity to go up in smoke to avenge ourselves, whilst his classically educating reference to the Sword of Damocles gets thrown back in his face by an idiot bureaucrat, suggesting that they could call the whole system Project Damocles, which makes the rest of the toadies feel very smug and proud of themselves as they sit around the table congratulating themselves. Nigel Neal's frustrations are reaching boiling point here, and through Quatermass he gets to rant about the notion of an ultimate weapon and the sheer folly of going into space thinking of war and taking all our hatreds with us into these new frontiers, and his plea to not lightly agree to this plan is met with an awkward silence from those who have already decided otherwise. For his pains, Quatermass gets a proper telling off from the Minister, and whilst there is some toing and froing about his objections and whether he ought to do what it's obvious they'd like him to do and resign, we also discover that the deed is already done and that Colonel Breen has already been appointed by this committee of weasels as deputy head of Quatermass's rocket group. Once again displaying Nigel Neal's preference for using other media to help tell the story, still at this time, a very innovative and contemporary method of doing so, remember, we cut to a radio providing the entertainment for the archaeologists back at Hobbs Lane, and, just to shift the themes of the drama into sharper focus, the news is on, giving us woeful accounts of a conference in Vienna, a terrorist incident, and recent rioting and disturbances possibly being racially motivated. The more things change, eh, people? More bones have been found at the site, and Roney now estimates that there are four bodies, as we pan down to Miss Dobson, an elderly lady played by Nan Broughton, who is doing some of the excavating, and who starts to have a funny turn as the eerie music cranks up again she's feeling a little light-headed and describes the weather as close before getting slightly embarrassed at the spectacle she feels she's making of herself for the gaping crowd moments later however it is miss dobson who finds a pipe and is joking that it's just as well she wasn't using a pickaxe despite that eerie theme cranking up again to emphasize that whatever this is it's unlikely to just be a pipe Upon further investigation we find out about its strangely smooth surface and very quickly the team are of the opinion that they don't think it's a pipe and once someone mentions that it might be an unexploded bomb they all down tools and have the general air of wanting to get the hell out of there as soon as they possibly can. And who can blame them? This time it's Roney's turn to be doing the pleading as he begs the excavation team to continue perhaps in another part of the site but to no avail. Self-preservation wins out over scientific interest and we cut to a now empty street where the bomb displays disposal crew are arriving. Amongst the crew are three very familiar actors to vintage television viewers. The always dependable Michael Ripper plays the sergeant with a very young-looking Harold Goodwin playing Gibson, one of the sappers, and heading up the team is John Stratton as our handsome and dashing young romantic military lead Captain Potter. Many, many years later he would do an equally memorable turn as Shockeye in a late-era story from the original run of Doctor Who, but his cannibal Andragum was certainly neither handsome nor romantic, but that's career paths for you. Also spotted at the window of one of the supposedly empty houses in Hobbs Lane is an elderly lady, one Mrs Chilcott, who is being played by yet another Quatermass, regular Hilda Barry. But her key contribution to this plot is yet to come in the tea-leaf reading scene in episode two, and her tales of strange goings-on in other houses. She had previously Played the wife of a victim of the alien parasites in Quatermass 2 and was obviously Cartier's first choice for playing women who fuss around slightly senile husbands. It is interesting, however, that this episode does have such a large cast and is able to give many of them very small bits of business to do to enrich the storytelling without necessarily adding much to the overall plot. This is because of the nature of live broadcasting and needing lots of bodies to be in just the right places when the cameras turned on to them, whilst the main cast head around between scenes, and the show needed plenty of them to give a sense of scale. It's also a sign of just how prestigious a production this was, in that it could get such a huge cast, but we should never underestimate the budgets available to those producing television in prime time. Meanwhile, Captain Potter is examining the suspected bomb and makes reference to the possibility of it being a Satan, which is a carefully chosen word picked to give just enough of a jolt to the God-fearing viewers. We should note, however, that the Satan was a real bomb, a bloody great big one at that, used by the Germans during the war, although that convenient link to Hob and the themes yet to explore in this serial is very fortunate. And so, as that creepy sinister tune is played again, Captain Potter is finding this discovery to be a bit of a mystery. His microphone didn't stick so it's not made of steel and there's no sign of corrosion which would suggest that it's not very old at all and he is perplexed enough to suggest that it's not any kind of metal. This leads to one of those who's-in-charge spats between Potter and Roney, and this is where we see Corporal Gibson and Sapper West, Westie, washing down the bomb, pipe, ancient, alien spacecraft and nervous old Westy is still a whole week away from getting his very own episode ending mystery builds upon mystery and Captain Potter is making inquiries as to whether there was any sign of an entry hole before deciding that he needs a second opinion perhaps someone with knowledge of rockets or missiles or bombs might be of some assistance back at the war office the endless meeting finally concludes and Roni in desperation has turned up with tales of the bomb and complaints that the army have been roped in and so are various threads of plot start to weave together as we get a quick episode entitled The Quatermass Manipulation, as he wonders if his newfound friend in the military might want to take a look at it to help smooth the wheels of their newly enforced collaboration. At Hobbs Lane, Mr. and Mrs. Chilcott are at the barrier talking with the policeman, preventing them returning to their home. They want a few home comforts and the kindly old police sergeant, who significantly in part to hers, lived around here since he was a child, let Let's them go inside. We now get a rather wide and outdoorsy view of the pit set, and it looks very much as if this huge set is open to the elements, partially built inside and partially outside, which explains some of the visible breath floating in the night air, and the fact that this one massive set is going to be home for this production for another five weeks. Heck, it even has a practical road, which was most likely going to be the entrance to the scenery dock once it stopped being a building site, possibly. It's interesting, by the way, that when the live remake of the mass experiment was made in 2005, they too based the entire event around one massive set that had to be all of the locations mentioned in the script. Of course, those making it in 1953 had certain advantages, and not only the fact that they were used to making live television because that's all there was. At least in 1953, they could build extra sets in the gaps between episodes, whereas the 2005 crew had to find a one-size-fits-all location, and it struggled at times to convince. Anyway, back to Quatermass and the Pit, and for 1958, that is one big set. And it does give an impressively Solid backdrop to all the episodes. This is Quatermass and the pit, remember, and that pit is one heck of a guest star. The other star, Quatermass himself, now arrives at the pit and introductions are made and Breen asks to take a look at the now more exposed thing that is being unearthed. Still nobody knows what it is yet, but as they scramble about over the mud and the planks Professor Quatermass is starting to put the established facts together and coming to some rather fantastic conclusions about why the skulls were found above the so-called bomb. And as he keeps on asking those interesting questions about the age of those skulls and putting two and two together, keep up audience, he utters an incredulous five million years and we crash in end titles So that's it! In just over half an hour of classic 1950s British television very little that is actually all that sinister really happens. Think about it. Some bones are dug up, there's a press conference, a meeting in a club, a meeting in an office, and a suspected Second World War unexploded bomb is found. And yet it's utterly brilliant and about to get even better if you tune in for the next episode entitled The Ghosts the following week. There's something about the dialogue and those freaky sound effects that just have you on the edge of your seat, even if the mystery of this mysterious capsule or whatever it might be, possibly being older than humanity itself, hasn't yet been been quite properly explained to the avid viewer. After all, as cliffhangers go, an old bloke in a hat telling you how old something is might not be the most likely thing to draw anyone back next week, but come back they did, in their millions, and Quatermass in the Pit is quite rightly remembered as one of the greatest pieces of writing for television that has ever been produced. When you consider how much 1950s TV is lost, we are incredibly lucky to have all of it to thrillers 60 years later. I've said it before, but there's really no doubting that it's an utter masterpiece.
2: Thank you again to Martin. Yes,
3: thank you, Martin.
2: He'll be back in episode 42. He will. And I know what he's doing.
3: Ooh.
2: Right, now Warren joins us again on the sofa to look at... The
3: goodies. goodies. Goody, goody, yum, yum. <laughs> oh, take a little good at Take a little pair of paradise. It's really not so hard to find. Got
0: it in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's what every you want. you <laughs>
5: <Green. Green. laughs> <laughs> 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 you want it to be. Rebecca, Dominoe. I suck we I'm here. We make it happen here. <laughs> Bye for uh,
3: Welcome back, Warren! Good
4: evening!
2: Don't go! (laughs) The Goodies! Mm -hmm. Mm. Series 3, Episode Mm -hmm. 4, from the 25th of February 1973. Oh, gosh. That old black magic. Mm -hmm. So, interestingly, early 70s. Yes. Uh, Is it the goodies do the demons, do you think? Uh, I think it's not quite. uh, I don't think so. I think
4: it's goodies take the Mickey out of Dying
2: Hammer. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) There is that, I suppose. But where is uh, the Hammer House of Horror we looked at? I said to you is a sort of strange collision between survivors mm-hmm. and Kinvig mm-hmm. and only fools and horses. Yeah. This yeah. is very much a collision between the goodies and Hancock's half hour. Yes, yes. As you've got Patricia Hayes coming in yes. as, as the guest artiste, mm-hmm. as, as the witch Hazel, mm. and of course in Hancock, Missus Cravat is implied to have magical powers in the cold. Mm. When she sweeps the circle round and true, stop this cold becoming flu. Ah, well, I don't know her for that. I know
4: her as the inebriated woman. Yes. Mm. From the film of the, is it late 60s, yeah. early
2: 70s? But it, 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 certainly in Hancock, she she's referred to as, as a witch in, in passing. Mm. And I just like the idea that, you know, may, maybe there's some connection between the, between the characters. Because <laughs> here she sort of holds a seance. Mm. And... Uh, Graham is revealed to have the power of darkness, basically. Mm-hmm. And you, you said, Warren, that it always reminds you of, of the pirate radio episode where... Because Graham's always got a bit of a dark side he, to his he's character. He's always got that megalomaniac mm-hmm. side that he's trying to hold down inside himself,
4: isn't he? Yeah. He's a scientist that... Uh, and he's playing an archetype scientist who we think is going to want to take over the world. Yeah. Sort of James Bond-stylish baddie. And, um, yeah, he he, but he has that... Sometimes that cheeky flicker
2: across to the sort of dark macabre side, shall we say? Yeah. Because I, I thought the actual studio lighting for this was really rather effective when they lower mm-hmm. the light and they've got yeah. to they turn the light down. Yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden it, it does take on a bit of an atmosphere. And it the shadows were long and they were yeah. Yeah. So it it people say studio lighting in, in you know in sort of comedy doesn't always work, but this 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 pushes it at least. getting some sort of atmosphere so Mm -hmm. i think that was quite quite good and of course sort of we've got the the thing here that sort of the the news of the sun Mm -hmm. um selling your story as a witch uh, which which i I do remember that sort of thing about sort of you know covens in in the middle of suburbia and things things like that so on, on in this case though we're off to clapham common aren't we yeah yeah yes <laughs> um, for, for some go, for some goings on, yes, which again does to be, seem to be an excuse to get ladies in their flimsies, yes. doesn't it? yes, they were a bit skimpy, weren't they? Yeah, mm-hmm. but Graham is like the sort of leader of the coven, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, he's
3: with the he, the warlock or whatever,
2: with, with grand his, high grand high wizard. Yeah, with with his uh, with isn't his big ice cream cone on his head. With a big pointy hat. Yeah, yeah like, yes.
4: Um, is it grand masters?
2: Grand masters. <laughs> <laughs> and as well he also shows i mean this is quite a good showcase for graham's sort of ability to do sort of physical comedy yeah 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 because first of all you've got him doing the magic tricks mm-hmm. you know, badly but very badly almost yeah. pertwee style and then we a bunch of flowers in the three mm-hmm. doctors and, and then we do get into demon's territory is he appears to summon up the devil who sort
3: of sounds like David Frost. <laughs> <Yes>. David Frost, <laughs> yeah.
4: yes. Who would have been um, on you know, television literally all the time. A yeah. sort of slightly
3: them, yeah. camp David Frost. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> David Frost mixed with and, Kenneth Williams. And this is the thing, isn't it?
4: When the goodies lampoon people, they go for it. Yeah. You know, but yeah. They will make it obvious. I mean, uh, the, 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 the prime one who, who, who gets the regular mention there is... Tony Blackburn. Tony Blackburn, mm. yes.
2: Yeah. And... Uh, we were surprised to look up where some of the filming for this yes mm. was, yeah. and it's somewhere that you know apparently, Warren is yeah. It? I've been to the castle in uh, Jersey. Yeah, um, can you remember it or uh, I can? Or did you
4: recognise it on film? I not? didn't recognise it at all on film. I yeah. was trying to place where the devil everything really was. Um, I remember when I visited there, because health and safety is clearly different on me, mm. <laughs> I nearly found, fell down a, grape, uh, a whacking great old well that wasn't sort of, but got a fence around
2: it. It's unusual far sort of flung location, because mm. often the goodies film around Dorset, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And, yeah. and it's very yeah. obvious yeah. in some episodes it's, it's Dorset, mm-hmm. but... To go off to Jersey for this seems it's quite a long
3: way. It seems it seems a bit odd, but and hey. then don't like didn't you get tax breaks if you filmed in Jersey? I don't know. I I think I don't know. so.
2: How it, how it works? Perhaps perhaps some of them going over for a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> but which hazel then comes on in in sort of white version of a, a witch's costume because mm-hmm. the original costume she's got she's got a big hat with all fruit on is not it? Yeah. And, and you like the bananas I the bananas. Mm-hmm.
4: But she never identifies herself as a black witch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. She says about the black arts yeah. but didn't
2: say about practising them though because I'm also remembered uh, reminded of Rent-A-Ghost
1: as yeah. well because yeah, uh, Mo- Mo- Mo-
2: Molly Weir does sometimes have a sort of white costume mm-hmm. that's very, very like that. Yeah. And then of course she she attempts to sort of exercise the, the sort of the, the evil out of, out of Graham. But mm-hmm. then, and this is where it gets really strange. Mm-hmm. He gets possessed by the, pir- the by the spirit. He gets possessed <laughs> by the spirit of a gibbon <laughs>
3: because she does stuff with animals, yeah. doesn't she? She doesn't get people. She gets animals.
2: Yeah. So Graham. Becomes a gibbon, mm. and then you get five minutes of running around on film with with Graham jumping up and up and down mm. with with his sort of arms and legs going. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a song that plays in the background, um, stuff that that Gibbon, mm. which I don't know yes. if I, either of you are familiar with. Yeah, yeah. But I had the World of the Goodies LP.
4: Did mm. you now? Yeah. Ah.
2: Yeah, and it was on that. And I never knew what episode it was from. No, I know exactly where you're coming from. Neither did I. Yeah, and I'll I'll see if I can I can track down a recording of it because it started playing, and I thought, "Hang on, I know this." Yeah, I know this song. Yeah. So it's very weird, but I wouldn't have seen this episode. But it's very subtly done in the background, isn't it? And it—it's it, not. Yeah. And, and in yet. fact, this is not a memorable episode, as to be no, said. Not, no, not there are some goodies episodes that really stick in the head, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I don't think I've ever seen this yeah. before. I no? don't know about you. I mean, you—you you knew some of the early ones from the UK gold days. Mm-hmm. they they certainly showed them then and some of the latest stuff i remember from repeats but this is 73 and yeah i I just i just don't know know this one at all and maybe it's not the best one in the world
4: but you have to think about the amount that they were producing at the time
2: you boil this down to how many scenes and effects yeah they're having to do yeah it's quite a lot and it's a real it's it's a showcase for imagination not just Mm -hmm, on part of the writing I think, but on the part of the, the effects guys well, as well. visual effects for, uh, have, have always been good for the goodies. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and and of course, as, as we've said, when when they moved to when they moved uh, oh, to the other is, side, yeah. <laughs> then, then I think it was a surprise as to as to how much the the show was being supported. And but, talking of the yeah. other side, yes. There is a nice little little <laughs> dig against ITV mm-hmm. just, just with a phone call. Yeah, and I think it's another of those episodes that just stops. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. There, there's no res- there's no actual resolution because we're still left with Tim and Bill being possessed by the spirits. Notice mm-hmm. they cut it just as Bill is about to cock his leg. Did <laughs> you did you, did you, did you yes. spot that? It's a very neat piece of editing that it gets across <laughs> what's going to happen. But they 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 stop it at just the right moment. So yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Maybe when if if I was like sort of four, watching mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. whether I would have been scared by it. Because I remember being scared by Carry on Screaming, for example. Um mm. that, that no, I've always found that ridiculous. No, Even at a young age, I found that ridiculously silly film. No, nah, it's it's interesting. i I think certainly for me the moment you turn the lights down on something
3: it makes it creepier uh, uh, yeah Mm.
2: it it just it is that sort of Mm. thing of of the shadows and the dark and stuff and even if it what is going on on screen is incredibly silly Mm. certainly for me as a young kid i i remember because all sorts of weird things would frighten you as a kid i think i think that's true i mean Mm. yeah yeah so I'd be interested whether because there's the story about the sort of person laughing themselves to death um, mm. at the goodies, and there's stories about Mary Whitehouse complaining mm. about certain aspects of it. But I just rem- I just wonder if some kids were ever scared. Thinking about it, I think the beanstalk in the goodies and the beanstalk did scare me a bit because mm. it was unstoppable. It wouldn't stop growing. All right. So th- there's the odd there's the odd moment in the goodies that I th- I think yeah w- were effective in 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 the in this sort of sort of slightly darker vein, i guess but there
1: you go mm-hmm. but yeah
2: there's the goodies yeah said yes. first time i've seen it probably won't watch it again for a long time no but no. nice no. to have it as yes part of the no, 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 absolutely and patricia hayes patricia was hayes. well
4: was welcome i think she yeah. was that's, she she, that's she
2: was yeah she was good i thought she yeah. loved the part. She, yeah. she enjoyed great, herself. Yeah. Yes. yes. And what about her eye makeup? Is yeah, it was all, very elaborate, was all, wasn't, was wasn't, it? Glittery, yeah, wasn't it? It was, it was all, and, Yeah,
3: it was all glittery. Yeah. It so she
4: couldn't blink, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Because it was you, so you
2: were thing. saying about how Patricia Quinn, as a witch from yes. the 17th century, was ha- very had well a well of makeup Yeah, on, she had she? sort of
3: lipstick and mascara and eyeshadow yeah. on, which she wouldn't have had. You know, if you were going to make it more historically accurate, she would have just looked...
4: And smell of cow manure. Yeah, so sort of and look
3: drab and and not, you know. But yeah. then maybe you wouldn't have picked her out so much. No,
2: it's true. You know, but it's a conceit, isn't it? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, so all we can say now is a happy Halloween to everyone. Yes. yes. Happy Halloween. And, uh, yes, a happy Halloween to you all. Enjoy your bobbing. And hope you enjoyed this episode and Mm -hmm. we didn't scare you too much. No. Thank you to everyone who's contributed to Mm -hmm. it. And we'll see you again very soon. Okay.
3: Bye-bye. Bye. That was episode 41 of Round the
2: Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Warren Cummings, Paul Chandler, Andy Priestner, Simon Exton, Ken Moss and Martin Holmes.
3: On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler.
2: The script for Quatermass and the Pit was by Nigel Neal,
3: And the producer was Rudolf Cartier.
2: Hello, i'm andrew hello i'm lisa welcome to episode 41 of
3: round the archives which the, you... the spooky special the what the spooky sp- special the, the
2: spooky special <laughs> let's do that again hello i'm andrew <laughs> what's funny what's funny about my stomach <laughs> Start laughing at it
3: warren's he doesn't know <laughs> not
2: warren's stomach that's <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> <laughs> oh bloody hell <laughs> yeah, the outtakes done.
5: Play <laughs> <laughs> your nose come. You? That's <laughs> naughty. <laughs> oh god, I don't think like I can <sighs> Right.